Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, this is just my short and and final discussion on the the end of the zero pod concept because even though it was removed in Monaco, it, it really died in, in Barcelona. A week and a bit on from the Spanish Grand Prix and Mercedes fans alike are still riding the wave of positivity after the first double podium of the season. But after months of speculation about what fortunes a W14B would bring, we finally have our first chance to look at the new car and its mechanisms in detail. Join me, Valve Baines, on this episode of the Silver Arrows podcast as we dive deep into the W14B and preview the Canadian Grand Prix. And to help us unpick all the things from the W14B, it is my pleasure and always friend of the Silver Arrows podcast, Bryson Sullivan. Bryson, it's so good to have you back on again. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Perfect. Right. Let's let's get straight into this, Bryson, because the last time we spoke, we could only speculate about the W14B and what changes it would bring. So, Bryson, could you talk through with the listeners the overall philosophy change and how that's manifested itself in specific parts of the car? Well, the first thing I want to say is I know it's very easy to criticize and uh, make a, a huge deal about how bad the zero pod side pod design was and, and even the half pod version of it that we saw previously earlier in the year. And I just want to emphasize that you know even now, there are CFD simulations and wind tunnel models showing that that design is fantastic and then it produces a ton of downforce and I imagine if Mercedes were able to actually replicate the performance on track that they saw in these simulation tools and in the wind tunnel, they would be like, you know, four or five tenths clear of, of Red Bull potentially. But the reality is that CFD is not the track. Uh, wind tunnel is not the track. And for whatever reason, the complexities of this design on the real car just did not manifest themselves as actually being a performance generating tool. Even if they did, they resulted in a car that was so peaky, had such a narrow setup window it stole confidence away from the drivers that in reality it just wasn't going to produce a type of vehicle with the development potential that you know Mercedes actually needed to compete for championships. So this is just my short and, and final discussion on the, the end of the zero pod concept because even though it was removed in Monaco, it, it really died in, in Barcelona. The, the concept died itself. So I think one of the questions that we always had you know regarding the zero pod design was, 
yes, maybe you can make these uh, side pods as small as possible. Try to get as much, you know, clean air to the to the back of the diffuser, the beaming as possible. Maximum, you know, pressure on the top of the floor with a lot of this exposed surface. But one of the challenges is we don't have barge boards anymore. You know, that that front tire wake, a turbulent, rotating wake that has the potential to ruin the downforce producing elements of the of the car in the in the back of the car and also sealing the edges of the floor. You can't control that in exactly the same way as you could before. That that positive feedback loop and shrinking the side pods just isn't quite the same in the current regulations. And so I think the reason why this newer design seems to be a, a bit better is that it provides a nice wide surface for that uh, wake from the front tire to attach to and keep it outboard as, as long as possible and keep it away from getting sucked into the diffuser and the beam wing, not only in a straight line, but very importantly during cornering. Because even if you have a design that seems optimal and seems like it'll work in a straight line, it has to work in a range of conditions and a range of ride heights as well. So that's one of the, the key things. Another thing is that it has a, a downwashing aft end to the side pod. And one of the cool things about Aero is you can dictate where a flow comes from by giving it an easy path to go. Right, we recall the Ferrari, you know, inwashing aft end to their side pod, which they changed in in Spain versus a downwashing one. And ultimately, what that d- dictates is where the clean flow is actually coming from. Is it coming from around the side of the side pod, or is it coming from over the top? And it seems to be the case that the over the top method seems to more reliably produce a high quality of airflow to the back of the car. So a wider downwashing side pod is probably the the most distinctive feature of, of the new design. But to be clear, the Monaco upgrade was just as much about mechanical changes as it was aero changes. The new front suspension is something that required a, a minor miracle <laughs> to be able to actually produce on the Mercedes to actually be able to increase the effective anti-dive angle of the front suspension, which modifies the reaction forces and it tends to give a better, uh, a more stable aero platform uh, as far as car control. And to be able to take their existing suspension design and convert it more akin to something what Red Bull has without, you know, re-homologating the chassis and all these details was um, an incredible feat of, of engineering, actually. So I, I would start with that as the, the major changes. There's some other changes as well that we can hit upon, but those are the, the main things that we saw. I, I want to touch upon something you said there, Bryson, about the, the wind tunnel. There's millions of pounds spent on Formula One. They've got all these data. They've got all these facilities. So why is the stuff that they're doing in the wind tunnel not directly influencing what's happening on track? Especially with Mercedes, we, we've seen them hit a brick wall uh, as such when it happens with what happens in the wind tunnel and then what happens on track. Yeah, so I mean, one of the, the key things obviously is that you're only allowed to create a wind tunnel model that's 60% of the full scale of the car. And you're only allowed to test at a certain range of velocities as well. You're not allowed to test at full speed. Um, and in aerodynamics and fluid mechanics, we have this dimensionless number called a Reynolds number, um, which essentially defines a, a ratio of inertial effects to viscous effects. And one of the important parameters of that Reynolds number change, and it's not going to be identical between the scale model and the full model, is that the relative importance of viscosity, the thickness of boundary layers, the, the blockage of the flow underneath the floor is going to be fundamentally different in a scale model versus a, a real model. Not only that, but this is a little bit more subtle, but obviously the real car is constructed of different materials than the wind tunnel model, right? The wind tunnel model, you know, this might be 
uh, you know, composites and some combination of composites and and metals and the actual car is as well, but they're not the exact same distribution. They're created for for different purposes. You know, one doesn't actually have to have an internal combustion engine inside of it, obviously. Um, and these things actually flex differently. They behave differently in response to loads. And so given how nonlinear and complicated and, and sensitive the flow is underneath the, the floor of these cars, changes in construction materials actually can have a big difference on how much the, the they flex and that can have a big impact on aerodynamics. Even things like the surface roughness of the belt that's running under the car in the wind tunnel can have an important effect. I remember hearing you know, sort of a famous aerodynamicist, William Toet, talk about this as well. When he saw pictures of Mercedes's wind tunnel, it was silky smooth as opposed to some of the more rough surface structures that, that other teams seem to have. And he postulated, not confirmed or denied, but that could also have had something to do with their their purposing issues that they were experiencing before. But there, no matter how we design these systems, you know, all of the models are wrong, right? You know, it's just that some of them are less wrong. There's always going to be a degree of, of correlation in terms of what you establish and, and compute in the simulation or, or in a scale model and what the actual car is doing. The problem is you can't run testing indefinitely. You can't run a full car with every single part you'd like to put on it. You have to derive some form of confidence early on and then, as I said before, correlate with what you see on the track to what you would see in the tunnel and then use that to down-select designs to actually build the small fuel that will actually yield performance. In terms of those upgrades, Bryson, what do you think has worked really, really well? Yeah, as I said before, the one thing that kept Mercedes from changing concepts with their car earlier is that they feared that they would go backwards instead of forwards. Now, to be clear, that may have been a necessary price they would have to pay in order for a long-term uh, prospect of, of progress, but they feared that the scale of changes that they were pursuing, the actual magnitude of what they had to do, uh, and what they had in front of them to actually produce a car that was you know, what the drivers were really requesting, would put them backwards. And I think the most important takeaway from Barcelona, obviously, but even from uh, Monaco, is that the major changes that they made weren't a step backwards. We, we could argue how much of a step forward it was and to what extent track-specific or circuit-specific factors influenced their most recent results, and, and we'll certainly get into that. But the most important thing was they didn't go backwards as a result of that. I just want to spend a little bit of time emphasizing how important that is. It, it, they were able to provide the drivers with more confidence. They were able to provide them with a, a higher overall grip. But I think that the most important thing is essentially that they didn't lose ground as opposed to purely gaining ground. And when you look at the torrid weekend um, that Ferrari seemed to experience in Barcelona, you get some sense as to what could have happened to Mercedes. Because again, by my estimation, Ferrari's changes to their concept and to their side pod design are massive. You know, they are very large, but they are not to the same scale of changes that Mercedes had. And by all appearances, Ferrari is having more difficulty with their changes than Mercedes had. So as a, as a primary jumping off point, I would just say that in terms of what Mercedes produced, it was a very high, it was a very highly effective result in terms of being able to actually stop them from going backwards, but also providing them some very impressive pace. And if you were asking, how do we judge how much of this is real upgrades and how much of this is track specific, listen to what their rivals say. <laughs> listen to what Aston Martin says. Listen to what Red Bull says. Uh, if people are describing the ship, uh, or if people are describing the car as a rocket ship or not being able to explain where that pace comes from, that's a good indication that they've made a real step. We don't want to speak about the old car too much, Bryson, but 
with the zero pod design, why was it so draggy? So I think this is a slightly more complex question than people might originally recognize because we look at the design of the car and say, well, inherently it's this design that's causing the drag, but actually there's two different types of drag, where I would say there's induced drag, which comes from the generation of downforce or the generation of lift. And then yours, what you might call profile drag or form drag, which is just baseline drag that's going to be there no matter how much of the downforce you reduce. And I think one of the things that was so critical to why the zero pod versions of, of the W14 and even the W13 especially had uh, quite a bit of drag, it's not just the side pods themselves that I think are important, but also how they interact with the rest of the car. So for example, if you have a simplified floor, it's not producing as much downforce as you would really expect it to produce. And again, the side pods are a part of that, even if it's been suggested that they that they aren't. But if your floor isn't producing as much drag or as much downforce as it's supposed to, then you have to make up for that downforce generation with the rear wing. And cranking up that rear wing angle significantly is less efficient than what the floor can do. You know, pound for pound or kilogram for kilogram in terms of downforce, the rear wing makes much more drag than, than the floor does. So one of the issues that Mercedes was struggling with in their previous versions of their cars is that because the floor wasn't generating as much downforce as it really should have been or potentially could have been, and again, the side pods are a part of that, because the floor wasn't generating as much downforce, they had to run this really huge barn door rear wing to make up for it to hit their downforce targets. And that actually caused a huge amount of drag because it's, it's induced drag. So, so one of the things I just kind of want to emphasize when you talk about why a certain car had so much drag and, and it was a zero pods. Yes, the bodywork does have a, an important influence on how much drag the car has, but also because these systems are so multifaceted and so sort of multivariable, an, an equally plausible explanation for why the Mercedes had so much drag historically is because the combination of zero pods and their floor wasn't producing the downforce that they actually needed. And they had to make up for that and compensate for that with the high rear wing angle. And that rear wing combined with the front wing angle have to, having to be increased as well to, to maintain the same aero balance, that just produced a lot of drag. It's one of the reasons why Red Bull's been so strong in this uh, current generation is that their floor works better than any other floor for any other car on the grid. And because of that, they don't have to rely on their rear wing as much in order to produce downforce. And because of that improved aerodynamic efficiency, they can get a much higher top speed without losing performance in the high speed corners. Now, I will say that there are certain aspects of this that are, you know, there's caveats and there's other details that we haven't really gotten into. But it, I only want to emphasize that it's not simply a question of, well, we made the side pod smaller. So why isn't there, you know, less drag? I mean, that's, that's certainly a part of it, but there's another part of it. The final part that I will say is beyond the induced drag and profile drag distinction, it is true that because we don't have you know barge boards anymore, um, the clean air that you would normally want to keep away from hitting the front surface of the rear tire is now directly hitting it with a, a zero pod design. So while it's true that you want some clean air to get into that gap between the rear wheels and the, the Coke bottle in the air of the back of the car, it sort of gets the beaming, gets the diffuser, that clean air has the ability to produce downforce, but by the same token, it's the ability to produce drag as well. And if there's a, a high energy stream running directly into the, the rear tire, whereas with a wide side pod design, they would be shielding the rear tire to a degree by minimizing the, that part of the drag, by a, effectively reducing the dynamic pressure, 
that could also be a, con- a contributor to having slow speed. So it's it's I think all these things are either direct or indirect consequences of yes, the new ground effect era and relying more on the floor, but also no longer having access to these massive aerodynamically loaded barge boards at the front of the floor to push all that dirty air outboard. I think there are several sort of unexpected consequences of that. One of them seemed to be higher drag for that idea. So why wasn't those those upgrades bought in earlier? And it wasn't because it was supposed to be for, for Imola. So why wasn't those upgrades bought in earlier if they were seeing those sort of gains not being made? Yeah, we, we speculated early on in, in the history of the Xeropod that because Mercedes made such extreme choices in terms of their packaging, their mechanical packaging of the cooling system and, and the, the underlying components underneath the side pods, that, well, the side pod outside is just bodywork. You should be able to just, you know, mount on these other shapes if you want to explore them. That ended up not really being the case. I think the reason why this took so long to actually come is not only does that did, not only did the team have to explore a completely different philosophy as far as aero development goes. It took time to actually find something that worked for their car, but also there are a huge number of underlying mechanical mechanical components that were also changed as part of this upgrade. And there are limitations to what you can do without completely, you know, rehomologating your chassis. A good example of this is the upper side impact structure. You know, there are two side impact structures on each side of, of the of the chassis. They're designed to protect the driver in the event of, of a side-on impact. And because of the unique zero-part design and some of the technical details regarding the regulations, Mercedes had to enclose their upper side impact structure in what I'm going to call a wing, you know, this cis wing that gave this this very unique shape and, and form to the to the Mercedes design. And given how high that uh, sub-side impact structure was, they couldn't actually move it around and put it inside the side pod where it is for all the other teams because it would require a rehomologation of the chassis. And so they had to take that side impact structure and keep that cis wing and somehow integrate it into this new, I'm calling it a wide pod design, <laughs> and integrate it into this new wide pod design in a way that still made sense aerodynamically, but also didn't break any regulations. So, so in a sense, the short answer to your question as to why it took so long to bring that upgrade is that it was a massive undertaking to actually produce something that was meaningfully beneficial in terms of the the on-track performance delta, but also something that was within the constraints of both the technical regulations and also the financial regulations. Being able to create something that didn't break the cost cap, that also didn't break the geometry and the shape of the car in a way that was uh, technically unacceptable, and something that actually produced performance. But that's quite a bit harder than I think people realized. And you know, who knows what we would have seen in Imola? You know, it's one of those things where it was such a tragic weekend, and we were so focused on you know helping people, you know, rightly make sure that they were taken care of. But in retrospect, yeah, you actually kind of wonder. We actually might have seen something very impressive from them at that particular race weekend. <laughs> yeah, hindsight's a great thing. Uh, we talked a lot about the side pods of the W14 or, or lack thereof, but what other upgrades did Mercedes bring to, to Monaco and Barcelona? Yeah, so there were definitely some uh, floor changes as well. And I, I know, you know, Mercedes seemed to uh, cop an unfair amount of criticism, I think, over their floor design uh, and as a relative simplicity compared to, to Red Bull. Obviously, I think that was especially true given that we saw the Williams design uh, in Barcelona, which was uh, another step entirely. But there are floor changes as well. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the, the other big thing uh, was uh, was the front suspension change, giving a, a greater anti-dive geometry. Essentially, the way to describe this is 
you have the upper wishbone, sort of like a, a V shape. You would imagine that the points for those intersect the chassis are mounted equally vertically. And by offsetting those vertically or increasing the angle between those arms of the upper wishbone, you can modify the effective roll center of the car as it pitches under braking. As I said before, it provides a, a more stable aerodynamic platform. One of the other things that Mercedes has been experimenting with, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, is that they've been modifying their engine cover and the cooling outlets to the engine cover. As we all know, Mercedes has these deep gullies in the top of their engine cover, kind of like hulking uh, shoulders that we've seen in the past. And then they're designed to, uh, it seems to be, I'll, I'll say based on my assessment of it, to take the losses from the cockpit and the low energy flow there and guide it in a very controlled way to a very precise slot in between the rear wing and the beam wing to be able to you know, minimize drag, but also minimize the adverse aerodynamic effects of that dirty air hitting something important. But in addition to that, those gullies in the current design, uh, they move closer to each other and they pinch as they go towards the back of the car. And what Mercedes has been experimenting with, I first saw it in Monaco in free practice too, and then I saw it again in uh, Barcelona, is a much wider, much more uh, open Canon style exit to the cooling, much more akin to something like uh, you know Alpine or, or McLaren or some of the other cars. And if I had to describe it to someone who isn't, you can't see me, you know, gesticulating. Imagine you know Darth Vader's helmet, you know, from Star Wars, sort of wide in the the back end. Imagine mounting that to the back of the car. Um, but curiously, they haven't actually raced this design yet. They've they've used it in free practice uh, in Barcelona and also Monaco. But when they actually went to you know race specification, they brought back the original one. So that's one of the other things that they've been evaluating. I can't tell for sure if it's a, a change in cooling philosophy or if it's an aerodynamic shift because it affects both of these things. But it is something they're experimenting with. But the the most important things I would say are the the new uh, suspension design, uh, which is a, an important thing, and then the new side pod design. And again, there are other subtle details in the side pod design as far as how deep is the undercut, you know, underneath the side pod. It's not very deep at all. That happens. Where do you actually position the louvers, the cooling louvers on the side of there to actually remove the hot air from the radiators? There are subtleties there, but the thing I really want to emphasize is what Mercedes brought to Monaco and even to Barcelona to a degree is iteration one or iteration two of this new design concept. And they are still getting their feet wet, so to speak, and learning how much potential and lap time they can derive out of this. You asked previously, do we think this upgrade will have a different effect in different circuits? And is there something specific about Spain that actually helped Mercedes? There are a few things, but I think fundamentally the package they delivered is a much more solid baseline to start with. When I listened to Total Wolf talking about why the team made this change, the truth is they can't exactly explain why this specific design is generally better, but you don't have to be able to explain something to be able to benefit from it. If there is something wrong, if there is something causing problems with the zero-pod design, the strategy seemed to be to eliminate variables, take things off the table that could possibly be holding the team back. And I think that's a very empirical, very reasonable strategy to take. It took a lot of effort by the engineers to actually make it happen, but it seemed to be paying dividends. You spoke about iteration one and two, Bryson. So I think the obvious question is, do you think in the next coming months or even this year, there'll be there'll be an iteration three, four, five, six, seven, and, and more? I do. And, and I predict that Mercedes will bring small updates and maybe even some larger ones to every race 
Historically speaking, their biggest upgrades come in Spain and Silverstone. Silverstone is, is a very big uh, upgrade race for Mercedes. That's also a little circuit that they've done very well at historically. So I do expect to see more there. But I think one of the things that I'd like to emphasize, and Aston Martin is relevant to this discussion because of what they did. If you remember, you know, 12 months ago in Spain uh, with Aston Martin, they totally changed their side pod concept from a Ninja Turtle style of looking car uh, to essentially a Red Bull clone, a car that looked exactly like Red Bull. But the reason why this is relevant is because their car looks nothing like Red Bull now. It's completely separate. So when you think about Mercedes, think about their uh, design philosophy, even if they showed up in Barcelona or showed up in Monaco with a car that was identical to some other car in, in terms of general shape, which they didn't, but even if they did, that's just a starting point to work on these other iterations and to develop their car in their own direction. And even if it seems like temporary pain, which it didn't seem to be for Mercedes in Mercedes's case, even that is worth it in the long run because it gives you access to a different part of the design space that can unlock a different level of performance. We saw flying cars, flying F1 cars in Monaco, Bryce. And so a question I want to ask was, what are similarities and what differences do you think there are between the Mercedes floor and the Red Bull floor? We spoke off air about the other teams having design inspiration. Do you think that that could happen? Yeah, so I think just a, a general note to begin with about you know design inspiration and, and copying other teams. Ultimately, Mother Nature decides whether or not your design is fast, and she pays attention to the fine details. It's entirely possible to create a car that looks seemingly exactly the same as another car and does not have the same performance. A, a classical canonical example was in 2020 when Racing Point made their pink Mercedes that by all intents and purposes looked exactly the same as last year's Mercedes or the previous year's Mercedes, the, the W10. But if you actually look in fine detail and listen to the interviews that the engineers gave about their car, even though they tried to copy exactly every element of the W10, the reality is they had to tweak their design and modify it to be able to actually derive the performance that you saw. There are subtle differences in the leading edge radius of the side pods and the distribution of the shapes and, and the cooling inlets are slightly different, but they had to modify to, to get their own performance. So when we talk about the parade of floors that we saw and, and cars flying through the air in, in Monte Carlo, it is true that there will be you know 8K high resolution images of so the RP19 floor and also the W14 floor and and uh, Ferrari's floor as well. And there will be comparisons made and they're no longer allowed to use photogrammetry methods to exactly reverse engineer the exact shape of the floor based on uh, images, but they can do their best guess to figure out what it, what it looks like. But even then, it will take time to understand what the flows are doing uh, in, underneath each of the floors and actually be able to apply a similar-ish concept to their own car. One thing I would say that sticks out about Mercedes's car in comparison to Red Bull's, Mercedes seemed to favor a very gradual, smooth sort of kick to the diffuser, which is essentially where the flow is accelerated the most and is sort of and then decelerated as the the, the wide the gap uh, widens in the diffuser. If you make that a very sharp corner, you can get a very strong 
suction peak and it could suck the car to the ground very effectively, which is great for downforce, but it's very sensitive to ride high changes, which can cause problems. Red Bull last year is one of the teams that also had this very gradual diffuser kick, very smooth, seemed to be very benign handling characteristics with regard to changing the ride height. Mercedes has gone that direction now, which seems to make their car a little bit less tend to have a little bit less tendency to have, you know, porpoising issues, which was in addition to the suspension changes that they made at the beginning of the season as well, and on top of the anti-dive changes for Monaco. But one of the things that you notice is the difference between those two cars is what I'll call the the three-dimensionality of the floor surface. And what I mean by that is it's not just that there are complex shapes in general, you know, forward-facing steps, backward-facing steps, compound curves, you know, all these things that both teams are sort of pushing forward in. But what impresses me about the RB19 floor is a conjunction of changes in shape to the roof of these Venturi tunnels and to the sides as well. You don't just see a shape coming down or a bulge in the roof that exists on its own. It seems to be working in conjunction with changes to the side of the floor as well. And it seems like, of course, there are three-dimensional structures and vortices spinning around underneath the floor that are being exploited to maximum effect. But it seems like Red Bull has a much higher degree of knowledge about what those vortices are doing and how to control them, how to prevent them from slowing down and eventually, you know, bursting. There is a, a, flaw, a concept in aerodynamics called vortex bursting, where a vortex runs out of sort of axial momentum and then it, it expands dramatically in terms of its sort of radius from the center and slows down. And that can effectively block the flow downstream and cause buffeting problems and, and other issues. So if you can maintain the health of those vortices as much as possible, then it really can provide tangible benefits. As I said before, Red Bull has been leading the way in floor design. Everything that I have seen in Ferrari's design or Mercedes design that I would consider advanced or evidence of a mature you know, design philosophy, we saw in Red Bull first, ultimately. The shape of their inlet fences and so many other factors. So Mercedes and their teams are definitely behind, but that doesn't mean that they, they can't catch up. And again, once we saw Williams's floor and the apparent complexity of their designs, and again, don't want to go too hard on Williams' designs, you know, I didn't design the floor, so it's unfair for me to uh, to criticize it. But it just demonstrates that there is uh, there are tiers uh, of complexity and development. And so the thing that I want people to focus on is yes, there is definitely a, a performance advantage that Red Bull has with their floor design. But actually seeing it for the first time in the current uh, guise of it, at least, will pay dividends to the rest of the field. We have a, a few questions from the Twitterverse, but before we do, Bryce, I just want to look forward to, to, to Canada. So what do you think we need to see in Canada to cement the belief that the upgrades are working as intended for the Mercedes team? Yeah, so as we kind of touched upon before, Mercedes had a fantastic performance in Spain. Uh, of course, part of that is due to the upgrades, but another part of it is Mercedes generally does tend to do well there. There were some circuit-specific changes, you know, like the removal of the final chicane, uh, which tended to increase the, the wear that Mercedes tended to, tended to improve on uh, with their recent upgrades. Also, the cooler weather seemed to also benefit them as well. Mercedes always tends to do well, or at least this season, they've done very well at front-limited circuits. Circuits that have a lot of high-speed corners and, and fewer traction zones. That's something that benefits Mercedes, and conversely, it doesn't really benefit Aston Martin. Canada is a very different type of circuit. The only really high-speed corner it has is probably Turn 5, um, which I was lucky enough to actually 
uh, see in person on a track walk last year. I was fortunate enough to actually walk the circuit, um, and that's a pretty uh, amazing corner. But by and large, it is long straights, you know, hard braking zones, and aggressive traction events on the exit. That's something that Mercedes is probably not going to do quite as as well in. They seem to be, at least in the past with their previous design, they seem to have a lot more issues um, with, with rear tire wear and, and confidence of the driver on, on the rear axle. Again, there will be some changes with the recent upgrades. And so this is definitely a, a different type of test to evaluate in general how the rest of Mercedes' season will go. I imagine it will be much harder for them relative to Red Bull uh, in Canada than it was in Spain because of the top speed advantage that you'll see in Red Bull that's just really going to come into its own. But also, Aston Martin will be much more of a threat as well. One of the things that Aston Martin has been fantastic at over the entire season, especially in the hands of Fernando Alonso, is extreme braking performance. And he was making up time against Max Verstappen in a lot of the braking events uh, in Monaco and, and a few other tracks as well. And on power delivery on corner exit, Aston Martin has been excellent. So not only is that a track where you'd expect more challenges in general, but Aston Martin is bringing upgrades as well. They're going to bring a pretty big update to Canada. And given the nature of that circuit, there will probably be a drag reduction. They probably will have a specific rear wing to reduce drag. And they will probably also have body work changes to reduce drag. And that's one of the few things that has managed to keep Aston Martin, yeah, I don't want to say down, but in, in touch with Mercedes for this long, is they've had a, a top speed deficit. And I think eventually that, that will change. Now, there is something brewing and developing that will matter for the rest of the season. The aerodynamic testing restriction allocations will be reset. It will be changed on July 1st. And currently, Aston Martin is enjoying an incredible amount of safety time from being you know, seventh in the Constructors' uh, Championship last year. They are turning away incredible development work. And Mercedes was third. That will very likely change in uh, basically around Silverstone time. And their Aston Martin will get significantly less development. So they're making an extreme push to bring new parts. And it represents a, a more serious uh, threat to Mercedes. The, the one thing I will say that as a final point on this is, again, cars aren't actually objects. They're really more like processes. They, they change every race. They, they change in how they're designed. They change in how the teams learn to extract the most out of them. So the form factor and the form guide can fluctuate wildly depending on what the team does in between each of the races, not to mention the fact that track surface itself can change dramatically depending on weather and depending on you know support races and all kinds of fun variables that engineers don't necessarily like. I, I always look at the cars as supercomputers and they just happen to have tires on them because they're so technologically advanced. But where do you think Bryson, Lewis Hamilton and George Russell could finish the weekend in Montreal? Montreal historically has been either Lewis Hamilton's strongest track or one of his strongest tracks. I think someone did an analysis recently suggesting that he is on average like four and a half tenths faster than his teammate at Montreal. As you may know, he got his first win there. Um, he, he's an incredible uh, driver on braking feel. And so as a driver himself, he's probably worth three or four tenths on, on his own. Combine that with the improved confidence that the drivers have in the car and the, the rear stability, I think they'll actually be pretty, pretty, be pretty well suited. I, I think that, again, Mercedes has the strongest driver pairing on the grid, uh, as far as I can tell, in terms of their results and their consistency. So any hiccup whatsoever by Aston Martin or Ferrari or Red Bull and Mercedes will pounce. They've demonstrated that several times, even in Spain with George 
qualifying 12th, I believe. He had pace to get onto the podium. And one thing I will say is that even though we derived the ponderous and large nature of the 2023 cars and they're not nimble enough and they have several features that we don't really love, we can overtake in these cars better than they were able to in the past. And I think Barcelona really proved that. I think the removal of that final chicane really played to the strengths of the new cars. Instead of forcing them to accelerate out of a slow corner, they're just going around a high-speed corner um, with their improved aerodynamics. It was actually much better. So I, I think that a double podium is definitely possible. And if any sniff of an opportunity presents itself, either George or Lewis is definitely capable of actually getting to the top step, depending on what the situation is. So again, it probably will be a tougher weekend for Mercedes than the, what Spain was, but there's no reason to think that they can't make it a positive one. Here's hoping it's a it's a late one for us in the UK. It's a 7 p.m. lights out uh, on that Sunday, but excited nonetheless. But now for some questions from Twitter, Bryson, are you ready? I I am in fact ready. <laughs> Let's do this. So Hamza on Twitter asks, do you think the drivers are optimistic about the upcoming races as the W14's drivability platform? has improved maybe there was some track conditions specific factors involved but they had some serious performance yeah as i as i said there there were a few things in barcelona that tended to to suit mercedes in terms of the cooler temperatures definitely would send to offset any sort of tire wear issues although ferrari still struggled with them so you you can't blame that entirely on on mercedes result but even though the 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 upgrades themselves have a, a general profile of what they do the, the most important thing is just driver confidence do the drivers have the ability to approach the limit of grip consistently and with a high uh, degree of, of predictability as far as what the car will do and this is why i mentioned that the the aerodynamics can sometimes be very complex because you wouldn't think that a you know a two degree difference in the the angle of a surface or a small change in ride height would actually affect things that much, but but they do, and the drivers can feel it. And so the, the most important factor in this is the ability of the drivers to be able to predict what the grip level should be or what the car should be capable of when they actually get to the corner because finding out you don't have enough grip mid-corner isn't going to do you any good because you're just going to go off the track. I, I think one of the things that Mercedes may have some difficulties with is just learning this new tire warm-up characteristic of the new suspension design. Um, that's one of the things that we've seen Red Bull struggle with in the past. You know, Sergio Perez in, in, in Australia had some tire warm-up issues and Perhaps you could even blame them on in Monaco, his Q1 exit as well. But being a little bit slower in qualifying could really help you in the race because it's that exact same process of how much heat you put in the tires and how quickly that actually gets you into the temperature when doing qualifying. What's really beneficial is actually much less beneficial. In fact, it's it's detrimental in a race where tire wear is an issue. So there there will be a few variables there as far as what compounds Pirelli brings to Canada and which axle is wearing more, front axle or, or rear axle. But no, I, I think the upgrades have been very positive uh, by and large. And as we said before, they're going to keep adding to these. They're going to keep in, improving them. And I have a high degree of confidence that Mercedes is one of the best, if not the best, developing teams on the grid. I, I think for people who want to inspire confidence in what Mercedes might be capable of in the future, just remember Mercedes won a race last year and almost finished second in the Constructors' Championship with, by their own admission, the wrong design concept. Imagine what they could achieve with the right concept. Right. I mean, Mercedes is finally getting out of their own way. And that's why I think they deserve some respect for not letting ego get in the way by not having any sacred cows and recognizing 
as soon as it became clear that their concept was not going to work by pivoting quickly and focusing on a new design, that's something that not all teams are willing to do. And I think eventually they will they will pay, uh, get the rewards from doing that. It did surprise me how agile they were in terms of personnel change and also recognizing this concept's not working, let, let's change it. So I was very, very impressed with the with the outfit. So you mentioned tire deg there, Bryson. Is Montreal a circuit known for having massive tire degradation? Um, not not necessarily. I mean, the, the one thing that really ruins your tires historically is just a very rough macro structure to the surface, a very bumpy, you know, open track surface the rubber gets into. Bahrain's a good, a good example of that. Um, and also very high-speed corners to just ruin uh, your, your tires. I, I think Canada is a street circuit, and so it doesn't have necessarily the same, you know, surface quality as, as uh, other places, but I don't think it's by at all the, the roughest uh, example. There were a few cases many, many years ago uh, where the surface was, you know, broke up a few times and they had to fix it, but it's been much better since then. I have to actually see what the tire degradation characteristic is for the current cars, because even if we have some data historically, we have slightly different cars this year. We have different, you know, tire compounds. We have different wheels and things. I mean, everything is, the changes, you know, year on year. And so things might be slightly different. One thing I do want to mention is that Pirelli will be bringing forward their, uh, what was going to be their 2024 tire. They're bringing it and introducing it in, in Silverstone. And as part of that process, they gave the drivers access to them, those tires for a few test sessions uh, in Barcelona. And I just want people to understand and emphasize that they're not doing this to give the hard tire even more longevity, even more grip so you can run the entire race on it. That's not really what's going on here. You have to differentiate between the compound of the tire and the construction of it. The, the mechanical parts that actually secure the, the structural integrity, really what the changes that Pirelli were bringing were about preventing tires from exploding in the middle of the race, as opposed to changing how long they last. So just to quiet some of the uh, the noise around Pirelli's changes, it's a safety question. Uh, another question from MJ. So can Mercedes finally remove the wing tips from the edge of the rear wing? Maybe an explanation, Bryson, on what they actually are for any new listeners uh, to the Silver Arrows podcast. They're describing removing wing tips from the rear wing, and I'm not exactly sure their perception of what the rear wing designs have to be in 22 is consistent with what my own are. We don't have the the end plates, the proper end plates that we had previously, where we could have a nice, you know, uniform rear wing and then sort of like a box. The end plates sort of come up as, as vertical elements and then they extend above the actual airfoil profile of the, of the wing that provided some prevention of the strong vortices forming that could improve the downforce and improve the efficiency. Now we're required to have what I'm going to call rolled tips, where the shape of the wing has to smoothly transition into what the end plate does. And again, there are some variations that we saw in that last year with uh, Aston Martin and their uh, armchair sofa design for their, their rear wing. But even that was outlawed for this year. So they still are required to have this this uh, smooth transition, this roll tip from the rear wing profile to the end plate. But teams vary wildly in terms of the radius that they use for that transition and also the actual shape of the airfoil um, the airfoil sections in that transition. Red Bull specifically uses a very unique design where the aerodynamic sections of their rear wing proceed very deep around that 90 degree angle 
around the, the world uh, tip far further than other teams do. And there's some structural challenges with that, but it seems to provide a, a benefit to them, especially when the DRS is open. And in the Aston Martin's case in Monaco and Spain, you're seeing them experimenting with a new design for the the, the roll tip. So no, I don't I don't think Mercedes is getting rid of any tips to their rear wings. It certainly wouldn't be something you could do within the, the regulations. But I imagine that there are still hidden treasures and secrets within the current technical regulations the teams are still finding ways to exploit. And I think this is one of the things that I want to emphasize that kind of ties back to our discussion about Red Bull and their floors and everyone taking pictures of them. Every team looks at every other team for inspiration in their design and to provide performance to their cars. It simply isn't the case that, oh, we just saw the Williams floor and who cares? You know, no one's looking at that. I can promise you, you know, Red Bull's looking at it. You know, Red Bull introduced some elements to their their floor edge that were first seen on Williams. And even going back to last year, Aston Martin in their launch of their AMR22 had a double T-tray, sort of a, a vortex generator at the front of their keel area that they showed during the car launch. And Ferrari adopted it. Mercedes adopted it. Red Bull adopted it. Red Bull still has it. So it simply isn't the case that no teams are looking at some other teams because they don't happen to be high in, stand, in the standings. You can always make something work because, as I said, you don't exactly replicate someone else's design when you put it on your car. You have to change it to work with your philosophy. And oftentimes, you can actually improve it. You mentioned hidden treasure when, when you said that, Bryce, and I felt like Peter Pan. But uh, <laughs> moving swiftly on to, to Anthony, he has a question. So Aston and Mercedes are so close in points leading up to the June 30th cutoff for reallocation wind tunnel CFD allowance. And I think you mentioned, you touched upon this earlier, Bryson. So would you postpone an upgrade to maximize chances of being third? Or is the difference between second and third so small as to not make it part of your considerations? That's a question there from Anthony. I can understand the rationale behind that strategy, <laughs> but it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous game. It's a risky game. The idea is, well, let's, we know we can make our car faster with an upgrade. Let's strategically not introduce it. Maybe allow Aston Martin to finish slightly ahead of us, um, you know, for a particular race, just so that when the paperwork is actually done, you can get access to more CFT time, more wind tunnel time. The problem is it's a moving goalpost situation. There's an unknown variable here, which is how much faster the other teams will actually get. You don't know how fast Aston Martin's going to be in four races. We don't know how fast Ferrari's going to be in four races. I mean, Ferrari is currently experiencing the scenario that Mercedes feared when they switched their design concept in terms of not being able to be fully on top of it or being able to extract the most performance out of it. But eventually, they will be able to do this. And who knows? It could put them very far ahead if they're at a track that suits them and they've optimized their setup for the given race weekend. So even though it, it may seem very tempting, and I do understand the idea behind this, to do that, the truth is it's a little bit dangerous to do that. Bring the updates that you have, make sure that they're optimized for a, a given circuit, and deliver all the performance that you can because you really don't know what the future holds. Not only that, as we sort of mentioned comparing Monaco to Barcelona, some circuits are actually better for evaluating new parts than others. Even if you wanted to move your upgrade to a different track, no, very few tracks are going to have as as good of a, of a correlation database as a Silverstone or a Barcelona or others. And so purely for the purposes of validating your correlation in your methodology for designing your car, it could be 
unavoidable to bring the updates when they were scheduled, not only to be able to you know, provide as much performance as you can when you can, but be able to correlate the entire process of developing these parts in the first place. And then uh, a last few questions, Bryson, before we say goodbye from Martin. He's asking, what more can we expect as upgrades this year, considering the cost cap, and how much is realistically to close the gap to Red Bull? I, I, so I think the best way to think about this question is given the way that Mercedes started this season and given their inability to commit themselves to removing the zero point concept right from the beginning, their 2023 season is already over as far as the championship is concerned, as far as, as far as I can tell. Their goal and everyone else's goal at this point is to prevent Red Bull from winning every single race. Now, granted, that's something that hasn't happened over the entire history of the sport. You know, and I think it was 1988, McLaren came very close with Prost and Senna and the MP44 to winning every race. But the, the goal of the grid currently is to prevent Red Bull from, from winning every race and also to position themselves as you know, to position themselves in as optimal in a, a situation as possible to actually start winning in, in 2024, because we really have no idea what's coming in 2026. The air regulations, we haven't even been discussed yet. We have no idea what they're going to be. We've only seen some power unit regulation changes. And so we have no idea what the running order is going to be. You have to try to win now when you can. And so in terms of what's needed to actually compete with Red Bull, there, there are two issues here. One is we really haven't seen the full pace of what Red Bull has currently. Maybe once or twice we've seen it in a situation where Perez was ahead of Verstappen and they were chasing each other down trying to get the win. You've seen inclinations of, of what the actual pace was. But when you look at what they were doing, what Red Bull was doing in Spain, and what Verstappen specifically was doing in Spain, he just had an incredible amount of pace in hand. Some, some of the lap times he was doing, you'd almost describe them as being sarcastic. Like he would be setting the pace and being the fastest car on the grid and or the fastest car in the field, setting you know fast slaps, and then out of nowhere just goes like seven tenths faster. Right? This is something that was brought up on on the race podcast and looking at the times is that they just have a tremendous amount of pace in hand, and so we don't really know what the target is. We know how fast we think that car is, but we don't really know for sure. The other thing that I would say as far as how big of the changes would be for Mercedes and what we can expect, you really have to remember that it isn't always massive, large-scale changes, things that you can see that yield performance. The magnitude of the performance jump is not proportional to the visible aspect of the change, typically, in engineering, especially when you get to the very, very high levels of performance. Small seemingly imperceptible differences in geometry or differences in setup or just changes to the way the drivers approach the weekend can provide really, really big changes in performance, especially given the nonlinear nature and the sensitive nature of the Pirelli tires currently, both in terms of you know thermal degradation, but also graining in, in certain other situations. So I, I think that Mercedes, and I've said this, even, even in Bahrain, I said this, I do believe that Mercedes will win at least one race this season, potentially more. And perhaps that was predicated on the, at the time on Red Bull's misfortune, and perhaps it still might be. But given what Mercedes has shown, their ability to make a, a radical change in the design of their car and actually not only not go backwards, but, but find lap time and confidence, that tells me that they're actually able to produce something pretty special towards the end of the season. And also remember, 
Red Bull is very cautious of the cost cap and uh, the testing restrictions given their previous infraction uh, with the cost cap breach in 2021, but also given that they're in the first place and they have the minimum amount of testing to begin with. And so if they're smart, and I imagine that they, they definitely are, and given how dominant their car is currently, they will mm-hmm. stop working on their current car, developing it probably in the next few races, honestly, and prepare for next season, that opportunity will provide a unique situation for their chasing cars, Ferrari, Aston Martin, and Mercedes, to sneak some wins from them and to actually put more pressure on them. So even if Mercedes does not bring a radical upgrade to the next few races, there's reasons to believe that the gap to the Red Bull will come down naturally anyway by these combination of factors. And I do believe that there will be other circuits where Mercedes will social genuine pace and have a chance to win. There you go. I heard it here first. Mercedes will win a race this season. Uh, Bryson, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Silver Arrows podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's all we have time for this week. As always, a massive thank you to Bryson for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. Do remember to follow us on Twitter at MerckF1Pod and hit that follow button in your podcast app. If you're enjoying these episodes and feeling extra kind, drop us a review and share this episode with anybody who you think may enjoy it. We'll see you after Canada.